We're going to be reading into 9, but Isaiah chapter 8, which seems like a, such a strange thing to say. <laughs> page 489 in the church Bibles. Page 489 in the church Bibles. If you're new to West Cohasset, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as a pastor, and you're very welcomed. Now we're going to read from God's Word. We are going to pray after that and seek the help that we need. Just in case you're wondering, sometimes a lot of Christmas songs repeat, and a lot of songs, Christian songs, repeat the same chorus three times, especially those choruses that give praise to God. Foundationally, the reason why that was that that is so is because of the Trinity, one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Spirit. So it sounds nice, but there's a purpose behind the repetition. Just, just uh, wanted you to know that. Let's begin reading, or I'll read, <clears throat> excuse me, from verse 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Here, I, here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on my, Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums, and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Now let's bow together and pray. Our God and Father, please help us now as we turn to the Bible. 
that you will be our teacher, that the Holy Spirit will enable us to think properly and respond humbly and sensibly as we consider Jesus Christ, light of the world, Christ born, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and soon returning. Therefore, Father, please, please work in us a proper sense of how large your mercies are, what it means and what is to be our response that God should come and die for sin-filled people, people like me. And Father, right now at this moment, everything depends on you. There's no question about that, Father. So then please help us. Prepare us for this reality as we hear from you, the living God, through the pages of the Bible. And it is for Jesus' sake that we ask these things. Amen. Well, uh, this is the third Sunday in Advent. And the purpose of Advent is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So part of this preparation is to look back to Jesus' first coming. As Jesus came as a baby in humility and poverty, born in an actual place, in a manger in a town of Bethlehem. And part of this preparation is to look forward to his second coming, as Christ will return, as he has promised, in majesty, in glory, and in authority. And there he will carry out his final judgments on every person who has ever existed. So Jesus will usher some safely to a place the Bible calls heaven. And Jesus will usher some sadly into a place the Bible calls hell, all depending on where one stands in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those ushered into heaven will have pinned their hopes, believing that Jesus Christ's death paid the full penalty of their debt of sin, knowing that without his death and without his resurrection, their situation would be absolutely hopeless. And that's the gospel truth, the sin-bearing Son of God, bearing in His body on a cross our sin, the penalty thereby consumed so the guilty can now become children of God and live a new life. And those who are in Christ ushered into heaven, those who are not in Christ will not be ushered into heaven. But of course, many of you know, not everybody believes this. There's always the potential that you might be here this morning and you don't really believe this. And if that is you, you're very welcomed. But some people say, the skeptic says that, says that Christ's first coming, well, it really doesn't matter very much. It's nice. It's, it's sweet. It gives us some time off. It's wonderful to receive gifts. It's wonderful to um, give gifts. But that's it. When it's done, it is done. Then back into the battle, back to the routine, Christmas tree goes down, the checkbook closes up, and they would say, you certainly wouldn't find me in a place like this again on a given Sunday, say in January 2014 or 15 for that matter. And some might say that, and some might also say that the first coming or the second coming, Jesus' return, it really doesn't matter much either because after all, you really never know. Death is mysterious. How can anyone really know? That's a little bit of John Locke for those of you who are philosophy students. And how can anyone prove that beyond here there's an out there? And that is empiricism, saying experience is our only source of knowledge. So the resurrection talk and the Jesus is king talk, I mean, it's, it's nice, it has a place, but we're much more advanced 
We're much more further along than our forefathers. After all, we can track hurricanes, right? We can pay $4 for a cup of coffee and we can eke out another year or two of life just by getting an extra hour of sleep at bedtime, according to the article that I read last week. And so some people say, maybe you say, this gospel message, it seems a bit dated. It seems a bit extreme. It's nice for kids, you know, get them off to a wonderful start in life, give them just a piece of the Bible, and they will more than likely turn out to be good kids, moral kids, and and they can go down that wonderful American line, a good job, a good husband, a good wife, and they will grow up, hopefully not asking us for money. But for me, well, it gets in the way of my life a whole lot. It gets in the way of my weekends. And well, frankly, since you started this whole gospel of Jesus stuff, it seems a bit too judgmental. It seems a bit too exclusive. And it seems a bit small-minded. And so they go on and say, even if there was a God and if there was a Jesus and there was a salvation, look at this world. I mean, look at it. A year ago yesterday, a 20-year-old young man fatally shot 20 children. One of those six-year-old children was the teacher. His teacher said he was so sweet, he should have come to school wrapped in a bow. 20 children, life's taken away. Six adult staff members, and you know the place, Sandy Hook Elementary School in the village of Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut. So before driving to the school, this young man took his mother's life, and after his slaughter, he took his own life. Come on, says the skeptic. Explain that. How do you think moms and dads are feeling right now? How do you think family members are feeling right now about this whole uh, good news of great joy idea that you Christians just like to tout out there? Well, the Bible does not ignore this reality. In fact, it actually explains this reality. If you know the whole Christmas story and the slaughter of the innocents, the Bible plunges its reader into that reality and still offers hope past that reality. Incidentally, and in passing, since that horrible day in Connecticut, there's a, there's a man named Joe Nasira. He's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, and he's been tracking every violent death in America committed by citizens in America since that day. And every Monday, he reports on the New York Times website. It is absolutely striking to read. And when you actually read it, it breaks your heart. This is our world. However, the God of the Bible, the the only God, deals with the brutal reality of life. And I'm going to suggest to you that any reasonable person who takes an honest look at the whole world and pays attention to even just a bit of what takes place would have to come to the conclusion of what Isaiah wrote, God's preacher wrote, in the 8th century B.C. That's 8th century before Christ. And if you look there, your Bibles are open, you'll see that he was right when he said, chapter 9, verse 2, I want you to look there, please. Those living in the land of the shadow of death. And on a morning like this, as hard as that is to say, but it has to be said, because of a morning like this, If you're going to be honest, the shadow of death is everywhere. Be sensible. The shadow of death is everywhere. And if you're only constrained to your own little household, then God forgive you. You're not thinking things through. And here Isaiah is expressing the mood of what happens to those who have turned their back on God. The mood 
of what has happened to those who have turned their back on God. And, and you can see it if your Bible is open, chapter 8 of Isaiah, and the mood is one of oppression. That's our first word. We have four words to work us through these verses. The first of four words to guide us again is oppression. And here Isaiah writes that the people of God, having turned their back on the word of God, are unprepared to listen to it taught, that they are unprepared to obey it, they're unprepared to glory in the God who authored it, and they will go and seek relief in most anything set before them as good and helpful and useful, and here's the key, to their own cause. Anything, anything except God's truth, God's Son, the light of the world, the living Word, anything else will take. Anything that seems good and useful and helpful to my own cause, they run to it. So verse 19 of chapter 8, you can see they're looking for answers in all the wrong places. So instead of inquiring the word of God, they chase after psychics, clairvoyants, necromancers, Manhattan mediums. They turn everything upside down. Verse 12, chapter 8, they fear what they should not and do not fear what they should. And their mood is ascribed, verse 21 of chapter 8, as one of distress and hunger. And in their emptiness, a cause they brought on themselves. They are enraged at God. They are restless and they are aimless. They look upward, not for hope. They look upward to curse God and curse their king. And so they find themselves confronted by oppression, distress, and darkness, angry at God, angry at their leader, living in the gloom of darkness. Verse 22, and they will look to the earth. And they will look to the earth, but behold, darkness and distress and fearful gloom, and they will thrust into utter darkness. Now, if you're thinking, does that not have a very, very contemporary uh, ring to it? This is our age. This letter was written 740 years before Christ. I mean, it could read like it's yesterday's headlines. This is People uh, Magazine, right? The Clairvoyance, the Manhattan Mediums. This is the Star Tribune. Look to the earth, the National Enquirer. Pantheism. God is in everything, so God, so everything is God. Go to the mediums. Be afraid of everything. I mean, that marks our world. Behave as if Jesus did not say, do not worry about anything by way of life necessities. And plan like the Dickens as if God doesn't give a hoot and God doesn't exist. Hurry, hurry, aimless, pointless, angry. But to look to the Word of God, verse 20, the law and the testimony... To look to the person of Christ, the living word, the light of dawn. Well, I think this is how it goes. It's nice. You know, I'll stick it in my back pocket just in case I get some bad news. Like medicine, I'll I'll take it when I need it. I'll put away when I don't. But it's only going to be on my terms. But a way of life, I don't think so. And as a result of these things, the focus of our world is almost entirely horizontal. Look to the earth. Earth Day, right? Which happens to fall on my birthday. All that matters is now. You hear people say this. Sometimes Christian people say this. Live in the now. This is all I have, so this is all that matters. And if there's more beyond here, well, then I'll choose a path that fits me to get there. And if anyone comes along to say there's, there's the problem of our world is the problem of sin, our rebellion towards God, our creator. And the only answer, the one answer is found in the baby in the manger who grew up to die on a cross, they will probably be mocked sat in a corner somewhere, labeled irrelevant or just flat out ignored. Yeah, we'll shuffle our children these things. That's what they say, but we will not put ourselves in these things, not ourselves. 
However, it's a sad and pathetic picture, a contemporary picture that Isaiah gives, isn't it? People are angry, shaking their fist at God, angry at authority, angry at their predicament, empty. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever enough. Restless, uneasy, and depressed. And they look to the earth. They look to, can you believe it, mediums, necromancers who are describing again, uh, described again, verse 19, as whispering and muttering. And by the way, that word uh, muttering can be translated whispering and, you ready? Tweeting. Twittering. And there you go. That's our world. Acquiring about life for those who deal in death. If you don't like it there, you can go around the block to another place, hear what they say. And again, if you don't like that answer, go to the other place. That's our world. That's 6th Street in Austin, Texas. And the deep misery which, which Isaiah writes of caused by turning your back on God, turning their back on God, this di- deep misery that ought to drive people to repentance instead drives them to blasphemy, drives them to anger, drives them to the necromancers. And when they finally turn to God, they, they, they only turn to question God, to curse God. How, how could you let this happen? Now you think with me, has there ever been a time when people... So many people are willing to curse God, doubt God, and question God, blaming God for just about every horrible thing that happens and ignoring His reality. How bold humanity is. How bold humanity is. Fashioning a whole life with no reference to God as if God exists at our pleasure. So you have to ask yourself, how's the world doing? I mean, how's the world doing? Is this not an angry world, a a complaining world, a world set on edge? Uh, One headline can take the stock exchange and turn it on its head. A hopeless world, a dark, oppressed world. And again, if you do not agree, then then I'm going to suggest to you your vision of the world is too small. Billions still still live in desperate poverty. 22,000 children die each day out of poverty. $400 billion spent on narcotics in the West and only $13 billion spent in the U.S. on nutrition for the desperate poor. You see, heaven is a place where there is justice and righteousness, not for some, not for most, but for all. So the people bow to the lifeless gods they've made, which is simply bowing to themselves. That's the trick, isn't it? Bowing to the lifeless gods they made is just really bowing to yourself. And the words of the preacher Isaiah that come, words marked by clarity and authority, are ignored, deciding that the tweets of the psychics and necromancers are far better. And the result, again, is oppression, gloom, darkness. They will not turn to, verse 20, the word of a god the law and the testimony. And if you had to to bring their oppression down to one word, it's the word that nobody likes to hear, but it's the one word, sin. I want you to listen to a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who at the age of 27 left his medical profession. He was the doctor for four prime ministers in England. He left that profession to pastoral ministry. And this is what he says. Man has become unhealthy. A disease called sin has ravaged his being. 
Man refuses to recognize his corruption and resorts to what is expedient to find relief, happiness, and peace. But invariably he fails. For the trouble is not only with himself and his surroundings, but his relationship to God. Man is fighting against the one, only one, who can give him what he needs and deserves. God has said there is no peace for the wicked. Man, therefore, by fighting God, by resisting, by disobeying Him, is robbing himself of the very price he covets. And whatever he may do, until a relationship of obedience to God is restored, he will never know happiness and well-being. He may multiply his wealth and his possessions. He may perfect his educational faculties. He may gain the whole world of wealth and knowledge and undertakings, but to do so, he will discover, will profit him nothing so long as his relationship to God is not right. There will always be something lacking. Even in his greatest joy, he will never know true satisfaction. He will find fault with his circumstances and change them, but the relief will only be temporary. He will blame other people, And form new friendships and alliances. But soon he will be unhappy again. He will criticize this and criticize that. Until finally like Hamlet finding all insufficient. He will cry out in bitterness. The time is out of joint. O cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Translation. I I wish I was never born. Life stinks. And that's the context. Living in the shadow of death. When all seems lost. All is not lost. Immediately then Isaiah begins to speak of light. That's our second word, illumination. You can see it there, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You know your Christmas songs, right? Long lay the world in sin and era pining. What What does pining mean? That's an ancient word for agonizing, vexing, worrying, oppressed. Long lay the world in that state till he... Christ appeared, and the soul felt its worth. Now, the context here in Isaiah is is in a certain place. Verse 1, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and in a certain time, around 740 B.C. So this is actual recorded human history. Christianity has a history. It has a starting point. God's people here are being ravaged by a foreign power. Verse 1, gloom and distress, but it's by their own doing. It's by their sin. Because of the refusal to turn to God. So the context here is very real and can't be avoided. And the great light, the light that is dawn has been seen. So what Isaiah is doing is describing a future, a real future event. And he's pointing to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And your New Testament and the very words of Christ recorded for you will bear this out. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, page 683, if you want to turn there, this is what it says. John the ba- Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested. He returned to Galilee. Then soon he, after, he went and lived in Capernaum. And Capernaum is a lake area in the land of, guess what? Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew tells us exactly why Jesus has gone to Zebulun and Naphtali. Chapter 4, verse 14. And the reason why Jesus went is this. I'm quoting the Bible now. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Okay, what was said through the prophet Isaiah? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And Matthew goes on to say, from that time on, Jesus began to preach What? 
He began to preach the gospel. He began to say, turn from sin and turn to God. Repent for the kingdom is near. In other words, from that point on, the gospel is unleashed. The light of the gospel on the glory of Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. So I want you to see this here. I mean, people say Christianity is for people with little pea brains, right? And the Bible was filled with holes in it. And you want to say to them in a very nice way, just come in here and sit and listen for a few Sundays in a nice way, pea brain. Isaiah is describing a present reality, something that still awaits the future, a future 800 years to come, and he gets everything right. This light finds fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. See, Jesus comes to that place in an exact moment in history and does exactly what Isaiah says, and the light is the gospel that Jesus proclaims. Jesus is the only hope in life and in death. So eight centuries before Christ's birth, Isaiah writes this. Thirty years after the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus does this. And now, 2,000 years after Jesus, 2,800 years after Isaiah, I am preaching this. Why? So that those of you who are walking in darkness, those of you who are living in the realm of death, the shadow of death, may see the light. May see the light and turn to Jesus Christ. You see, we say around here a whole lot, and I hope we're finally getting this as a congregation, that the Bible is a book completely about Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the New Testament, Jesus, or the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In Acts, Jesus is preached. The epistles, he's explained. In the book of Revelation, he's expected. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I want you to see this. I want you to get this. This is what has happened. The people who were looking for life and love in all the wrong places have seen that great light. And every time Jesus is preached, that great light is shined again. Illumination. The light is Jesus. The light is not just light. It's a person. And the person is a message. And the message is the gospel. Jesus, again, I am your only hope in life and in death. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to God and live a new life afterwards. And again, this age is so sleepy in the things of Christ. The light needs to be big and the light is big. Now, this all begs the question, doesn't it? Are people, are you looking for life and love in all the wrong places? It may not be mediums. It may not be psychics. It could be money. It could be a man. It could be a woman. It could be yourself. You have a personal line of thinking that you cling to could be religion. That's always dangerous in a place like this, right? You're clinging to the fact that next year you're going to be even, try even harder to be religious than you already were last year. Could be that you're trying to be sanctified by being separated, but everything you're clinging to isn't Jesus Christ. Point of fact, you might admit that you don't even really like saying the name Christ or Jesus very much. You'll say God And you'll say, Lord, and you'll say the good Lord, and you'll say the man upstairs, but you will not say, Lord Jesus Christ. And worshiping Jesus isn't even on your radar screen. 
Tell yourself this if you need to. Tell your friends this if they need to know it. In Jesus Christ, your sin, your rebellion, your darkness that you know is there, that puts you in this horrible position that has not been atoned for, can be atoned for. It can be put away forever. So can I ask you, where do you take your sin? Where do you take your sin when you sin if you're not in Christ? Do you ignore it? Kind of pay no attention to it? You're certain that time will put it away out of your memory and that's how you deal with it? You forget about it and that's how you deal with it? Or you are counting on your sincerity? You're counting on that you're a very young person, that you're a very old person and somehow God will look on you with pity? Or are you counting on a great number of good deeds to weigh all the, out those bad deeds? It was strange. Last night I found this quote from Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine lived during the time of the Revolutionary War. He opposed Christ his whole life. On his deathbed, he, he begins to cry out for mercy, but not Christ, just for mercy. And he calls for children to come to his bedside. And he was thinking that if, if children were around his bedside, then somehow God would look at him and have pity on him. So are you counting on all those things? Are you counting on Christ? Because I can assure you that God does not think sin is petty. Do you know what atonement means? Atonement means this. Christ satisfied God's wrath, God's anger on our sin by Jesus' suffering and death on a cross. A long time ago, someone wrote a hymn, Souls of men, why will you scatter like a crowd of frightened sheep? Foolish hearts, why will you wander from a love so true, so deep? A dark, hopeless, fearful, aimless, pointless way of life can end. The hope in life and in death that Jesus Christ offers you, Jesus Christ offers you. Verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3, this is what happens. This is a bit of what happens. You have enlarged the nation. When you come to Christ, God's kingdom is expanded. A new servant of God is added and increased their joy. You know, joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrow reign. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and men rejoice dividing plunder. That's the Christian experience. That's why we celebrate Christ- Christmas. Here comes. Here he comes. And guess what? He's coming back. Oppression, illumination, third word, incarnation. God is going to save the world. And God's first step is sending his son through the birth canal of the Virgin Mary. This is, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. This is extraordinary. Yes, I mean, if you think through it, it is. The Bible does not explain the science behind the virgin birth. It just declares the virgin birth. You see it again there. Verse 6. How is God going to save the people? Think. By conquering their enemies. How? With, with some mighty blow of overwhelming force a huge army? Is it political power? Is God just going to pass out a whole lot of money and just pour it on the people? No, it's going to be just like in the days of Midian. Midian's defeat. You mean Gideon? Days of Midian? Yes. This is why you need to know your Bible. There were 32,000 Israelites that God determined to whittle down to 10,000 Israelites that God determined to whittle, whittle down to 300 Israelites to face the Midianite army of several hundred So you get this picture, a few hundred Israelites and several hundred thousand Midianites. That's the battle. Verse 4, slavery and bondage, but it's going to end. Verse 5, all the instruments of warfare put away 
fuel for the fire. Why? Why? Well, God's move here is He's not going to destroy the world. Not yet. He's going to send His Son into the world first. So He's not dropping a bomb. He's sending a baby. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is giving, given. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. In our rebellion, God's first move is to come and save us so that the battle belongs to the Lord, just as in the days of Midian's defeat. And if you ever read the story, Judges 6 and 7, you'll discover that it wasn't really a battle. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a battle. God caused the enemy of Israelites to turn on themselves. The Israelites were more like props. I mean, think, you had a few hundred Israelite men with, with, with torches and pottery in their hand. The point of that, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that those few with that stuff can defeat that huge army. Army, Why? So that no one may boast before the Lord, we did it. We did it. You look like you need a bit of humor. This would be like me trying to fix something around the house. Right? I have my work belt on, flashlight, hammer. And I'll go around the house strutting my stuff for a little bit before I actually do the work and telling Nicole I'm going to move this wall out and do that. And then within a few minutes, I'm hand in face asking my wife for help. How is God going to defeat evil? Step one, he's going to send a little baby. I didn't mean to skip over verses five, four and five so quickly, but do you see it there? See, these people knew about burdens and tyrants and beatings. It was much the way of life for the people of God in the Old Testament. Tyrants oppressing them, beating them, burdens heavy on them. That's the imagery there of of Egypt, the land of Egypt as slaves. Now you think with me. Think about how Jesus preached himself from the Old Testament, which means Jesus preached himself from Isaiah chapter 9. Just as in the days of Midian's defeat. I can hear God saying to all of us, I am a God in Jesus who who makes your burdens his own. I am a God in Jesus who takes your beatings. He has been beaten himself to a pulp, nailed to a cross, but then rose again. I am the God who in Jesus sets you free from your oppressor and sets you free from your oppressions. Now, if you're going to be honest, some of us here this morning know that your burdens are too much and you are oppressed. You wouldn't want anybody to know, but God knows and you're in such a state of despair. And you've tried many things, perhaps even a dark room in a bad place trying to hear from the dead. God's word to you, as bad as those things are, God's word to you this morning is mercy. It's mercy. Isaiah is saying, listen, listen, there is freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is freedom in this light. Which is why when Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, this is his first public sermon. He goes to a place in Isaiah. He finds it purposely and then he reads this out loud. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, freedom for those in bondage and sight to the blind and released for the oppressed. And then Jesus takes that scroll, rolls it up, sits down and says, and every eye is on Jesus then, Matthew says. Luke says, excuse me. And Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the liberator. I am the light. I set captives free. I mean, not every mood of depression and despondency is medical, is it? The Bible would say much of it is sin. So in the incarnation, God is deliberately working in the world that despises him, rejects him, rebels him, against him, curses him, so that he might offer his salvation to them in the most unimaginable way. The birth of a child. The Christ child. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Oppression. Oppression because people neglect the word of God. Illumination. Isaiah points to the great light of God. Incarnation. The light of God is none other than the Son of God. A child is born. And finally, explanation. Our time is, is ending. We'll come to this more fully next time. I'll spare it in Lord willing next time. Because you never know. But you should know this. What Isaiah is doing is explaining to this who this born child is. Who, who is this son given? In other words, who is Jesus? Not, as so many say, not what does Jesus mean to you? Because what does Jesus mean to you is a horrible first question. Because you can't get to know Jesus by looking to yourself. Not first. We get to know Jesus by looking to Jesus. What does Jesus mean to you can only truly be answered when we, an- we answer the question, who is Jesus? And what you can do there is you can see, verse 6, that Jesus Christ is simply everything that we are not. Do you see it there? He is the supreme counsel. He is mighty God. He is the eternal Father. He is a prince, the king of kings, and his kingdom filled with justice and righteousness, always getting everything right, never getting anything wrong, will go on and grow on forever and ever. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not us. That is not us. I wonder if you've ever heard the name Marion Williamson. She's a good friend of Oprah Winfrey. She has a book and a course, and the title is A Course on Miracles. These are some of the lessons that she tells us. Lesson number 35, you are God. Lesson number 61, there is nothing but holiness, there is nothing my holiness, your holiness cannot do. Lesson number 96, you are the light of the world, speaking to us. Lesson number 186, salvation comes from you. Lesson number 191, salvation in the world of the world depends on you. Lesson number 34, I am the Holy Son of God Himself. No, Marion. No, you're not. The kingdom of God will go on and grow on forever, which means that his rule will eventually run up against our rule if we are not ruled by him. Do you understand that? His kingdom, which is ever expanding, will eventually run up against our rule if we are not ruled by him. The day is inevitable. So Isaiah would say to us, Jesus would say to us, you can come now, repentance and faith, putting the government of your life, verse 6 be on his shoulders. And for 39 years, I have put the government of my life on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. You can do that now. or You can go your own way, which Isaiah says is darkness and living in the land of the shadow of death. And only you know that. So the question is simple, and this is it. Will you put your whole life into the hand of Christ and let him lead you? And the moment you really do this, light comes. 
It is the most wonderful thing. It is the most sensible thing as we think things through and we are mad if we ignore this. We're mad if we ignore this and we are mad if we keep this to ourselves. And I want you to please think these things through. And this morning, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Let's bow together and pray. Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the light and life in the face of death as you rose from the dead. Thank you that you are real and you are not imagined. Thank you that your instruction is not dated, but it's forever and brings absolute clarity to our lives. And thank you that you are merciful and that you would unburden us from our oppressions, from our oppressors, from our burdens. May this Christmas be a time when we genuinely rejoice at your coming and put ourselves under your government so that you might ease our conscience, lighten our burdens, deliver us from our oppressions, so that you might save us from eternal condemnation. For your sake, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.